Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. Thanks for joining Tyler and I for another episode. This is episode 107, and today we'll be chatting with Esther Crawford, the CEO of Olabod, a platform that makes it fun and simple to build personal bots. With a background in philosophy and an interest in Middle Eastern politics, Esther began to explore different online tools and community like blogging and YouTube during college. Pairing this with her passion for storytelling and design, Esther began her career as a social media consultant to some very large brands before launching her own startup called Glimpse. Glimpse was unfortunately not as popular as its closest competitor, Vine, and Esther ended up continuing on her startup journey by diving into mobile product marketing and growth at several other startups, including Coach.me. In 2015, Esther began to explore the emerging bot trend and built her own resume bot. She open sourced a project which was quickly used by hundreds of people looking to build bots of their own. Continuing to experiment with personal bots, Esther launched a platform called Olabot. They've since launched several other bots, including Messinabot and a bot for RedFoo. She's now part of the Betaworks Bot Accelerator BotCamp. Esther's bots have been featured in Fast Company, Lifehacker, VentureBeat, and much more. Throughout her nine-year career as a product marketer, Esther has worn several different hats, helping to define and execute go-to-market strategies, product launches, messaging, marketing campaigns, and much more. Esther joins us today to share her story, how she got into tech and startups, what attracted her to the bot and messaging space, what it's been like iterating on EsterBot and building the OlaBot platform, and much more. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet us at HackToStart, drop us an email at heyathacktostart.com, or share your feedback right in iTunes with a review, good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Hey, Esther. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're super excited to have you on and hear about all the amazing things that you're up to, uh, you know, with Olabot and and at BotCamp. So, you know, before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Like, where are you from and and what did you study? Yeah, sure. So let's see, going back to college, uh, which was a while ago now, um, I actually was a philosophy major in my undergrad in college. I I thought that I was going to go on and be a dentist initially, and then uh, I didn't like those classes. And so um, I really wanted to study. I basically sat down at one point and I said, what are the classes that I would take if I were just taking classes that were interesting, not because I was trying to get a particular degree. And all of those classes ended up falling under the philosophy department. They were classes around ethics and what it, what it really means to live a meaningful life and um, classes about world religions. And, um, and so I ended up getting a philosophy degree. And then after that, it was like, okay, well, clearly, you know, you, can, you can't just live off of that. What are you really going to do? But during my undergrad, I had also started studying Arabic. My freshman year of college, literally, I think two weeks into college, 9-11 happened. And so as I was sitting there watching the Twin Towers fall, I was really struck by the realization that I didn't know anybody who spoke Arabic and I didn't have any Muslim friends. It was just kind of like this awareness that came to me. Um, I grew up in a fairly small town, a college town in Oregon. 
And, you know, it's just like this very, it was a very white homogenous group. And so, yeah, I realized that and decided within a couple of weeks of 9-11 that I wanted to study Arabic because I was just, you know, it was all over the news and they were making all these claims about why people had done this and what, you know, sort of like what was going on in the region. And I'd always been really fascinated by politics and had followed it pretty closely. And of course, like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is always in the news. And so, I'd been hearing all these things, but I didn't have any firsthand knowledge. And so it felt like instead of just relying on what other people told me, curiosity sprang up. And so I decided to start studying Arabic. And I studied Arabic for, gosh, like five years in total. And towards the end of college, I went and I spent a year abroad living in Jordan. And there weren't any study abroad programs from my school. So I I just checked out for a year and I enrolled directly in the University of Jordan and they had um, an English department, and they also had a, an Arabic language department for foreigners. And so I was taking classes that, you know, anybody would be taking about sort of like Middle Eastern politics and things going on in the region. And then I was also studying Arabic, and that just ignited a, a passion and curiosity that ended up propelling me into getting an international relations master's degree at Durham in in, uh, in England. So that's kind of, that's my educational background. <laughs> and I never used any of it. I mean, other than I think it taught me really valuable lessons about how to engage people and how to engage curiosity and how to be a learner and a tinkerer. But while I was in grad school and I'd also, while I was in college, um, like undergrad, I had always been blogging and part of various online communities. I was really early on Zanga and had a, a pretty substantial following there, which is like a long time ago. This is like the live journal <laughs> era of blogging, uh, blogging 1.0. And then I was really early on YouTube. And so YouTube launched while I was in grad school and I developed um, a following on YouTube where I was mostly talking about Middle Eastern politics. And I did not look like somebody who would be knowledgeable um, or who would have firsthand experience uh, or who lived in the region or who spoke the language. And so I think, you know, that really stood out. And then within a year or so of being on YouTube, it just, I started getting all of these inbound requests from brands who were saying, oh my God, how are you getting millions of views? We are spending insane amounts of money on our, you know, with our agencies who are not able to do this. Like you have figured something out about online communities. Like, will you help us? And so not long after graduating with my master's, I started a social marketing consultancy and I started immediately working with like very big brand clients to help them navigate the emerging social marketing space. Oh, that's really cool. Um, and, and, Jordan is actually on my list of like places to go visit. It looked beautiful. I lived in uh, Turkey for a little bit in 2009, but uh, Jordan looks really, really awesome. Uh, what was that experience like for you, like living abroad and kind of designing your own study abroad program, I guess? Yeah, it was really fantastic. I mean, I think you definitely have to be somebody who is willing to put yourself into um, sort of like awkward situations to, to navigate that kind of cultural difference, but it was really fun. I mean, Jordan is a beautiful country. While I was there, it was, you know, sort of early days of the Iraq war. And so there was a big influx of Iraqi refugees. And that was a really fascinating experience to be able to see up close, you know, what does it really mean for a city or a country to bring 
in and handle a, like a huge refugee influx. I got really lucky that I was an American and I was able to connect with the, you know, the U.S. Embassy and sort of regional programs that let me do things that normal people, if you were just like vacationing there, would never do. So things like going and meeting with people at refugee camps. I went over to the border of Iraq in the, in the what's considered the no man's land to the Al-Ruwaitian refugee camp where um, at that point people had been stuck for like two years at this camp and it was like horrific conditions. I saw some things like I, I wish I didn't see, but um, but they impacted me in such a positive way because it made me really, really have to face the reality of the full range of the human experience. And I think that is powerful and important to, to sort of like grapple with. So yeah, Jordan was uh, like a life-changing experience. And it was also like, it was, it was also just like a lot of fun. Like I traveled a lot. Um, I ended up backpacking through Syria on my own with a friend, um, just the two of us, these, these like, you know, two girls um, hitchhiking through Syria. And that was like an amazing experience. And I'm so glad I did that before, you know, Syria dissolved into civil war. And uh, one of the places we stayed is this little town, Holmes. And Holmes ended up being the epicenter of the conflict and so now when you look at drone footage of that city, it's literally like, it looks like a graveyard. And I have very distinct memories of like walking around the town square and having dinner and like getting rides with like random people um, in that city. So yeah, it's, I'm really grateful for that experience. That sounds like such a surreal, but ultimately positive experience. So diving back into tech and startups, following your online video consultancy, you built your first product startup called Glimpse. So what is Glimpse and what really motivated you to start this company? Yeah, so Glimpse was a seven-second video app. We basically enabled you to take a photo and then we had already captured the footage leading up to that photo and we would display it for you kind of like in a GIF. It would it would uh, play and repeat and it was very very much a social product. So you had, we had like a discover feature and you could watch glimpses happening all around the world. And this was in the era of Instagram had just launched and there was sort of this question mark hanging out, which is, will there be an Instagram for video? And of course, ultimately there was, it was Vine. Um, we launched before Vine and uh, I think they really took what we built and made it a little bit better. And um, and so, yeah, that was the first product that I built and it came out of um, having been on YouTube and having worked with um, video so hands-on for the lag. I don't know, for like four or five years up to that point, um, mostly working on campaigns, doing like, you know, viral marketing campaigns using social video and just saw this opportunity for there to be short form video. And so me and two co-founders, um, a guy named Paul and a guy named Nicholas um, got together and we we built it out. And it was really an amazing experience to have people come into a product that, you know, I had been uh, working on from, you know, from the very early days and learning about user testing and um, interaction design and user experience and like things that I hadn't really had to think about when I was just marketing other people's products. It was a very different kind of experience building my own, but it was incredibly valuable um, to walk through that process. And, you know, we got like great initial reviews and some like early traction. But ultimately, I think 
the product itself wasn't polished enough. And, and I think that we didn't have the right hook. And that was one of the things that um, I've learned along the way is that like, you know, listen to your earliest customers and iterate quickly. And I think we didn't actually iterate fast enough. So the team Vine that actually did iterate faster, you know, they won. And like, I think they really deserved, deserved to win. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced while building Glimpse? One of the one of the earliest challenges we had is that we started out the three co-founders. We were in different time zones and different locations. We had met online through YouTube, early days of YouTube. We'd known each other for a few years. And that process of trying to build a product and build a company remotely was really hard. It was a lot harder than I than I thought it would be. And and it was like it was just disruptive to the process. And so, you know, clearly there are teams that do it and do it really well. But I think in the earliest days of, of building a product, it's so much better if your team is able to like look each other in the eye and whiteboard together and, and just like sit in a room and stay there for weeks or months if you need to. And we just didn't have that luxury. And so I think everything was, you know, just was harder to pull together. Yeah, for sure. There's no, there's no late night pizza and beer sessions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So you were then the product manager and product marketing lead at Blanket and Coach Thought Me, respectively. What were these startups and how did you create the opportunity to work there? Yeah, so I'll just jump straight over to Coach.me, which I think is a really interesting story. Um, so Coach.me, when I joined the team, it was called Lyft. And Lyft was um, founded by a guy named Tony Stubblebine. He's He's got a really fascinating story himself. He actually was the engineering lead for Odeo and Odeo is what spawned Twitter. (laughs) And so he ended up leaving uh, the company and did not go on to like work at Twitter or anything like that. But he had a really close personal connection with Ev Williams as a result of working together at Odeo. And, um, and so he had built Lyft and Ev Williams was on the board of Lyft and they were part of like the obvious incubator, which the Twitter co-founders had put together. And so when I joined, Lyft was um, a product that was a habit tracking app. And they had like a fairly robust community of people who were tracking daily habits. Um, you know, sort of you check in to the fact that you had gone running or you would check into the fact that you had drank water or you check into the fact that you had meditated. And you could see your friends who had also checked in and you could encourage each other and give each other props. So when I joined the team, they were looking for a product marketer and they were also looking for someone to kind of help them figure out what the business model would look like. And so Tony and I sat down and started talking about how it made a lot of sense naturally for them to pivot into coaching of some kind. Because here you had people who were saying, these are the habits that I want to have and here's what I'm doing, you know, sort of like, here's, here's how I'm doing so far, but everybody to some degree, fails to live up to their full potential. And Lyft's mission and Tony's mission and vision for the company was really to provide a platform for people to be able to be their best selves, to sort of live up to their superhuman potential. So in the earliest days of joining the company, and I will say the way, so how I got that job was completely just like a cold email. I had been a Lyft user and... I think I saw them on AngelList. I feel like maybe AngelList was pretty, it was pretty early days of AngelList and I was poking around and, and I just saw, you know, saw the company on there and was like, oh, like that's actually a company I really like. And I like, it's a, it's a mission that I believe in and like, I should just 
reach out. And so, yeah, I just like emailed Tony and we started a conversation and met up a bunch of times and then it just kind of made sense for me to join the team. So, so that's how I ended up there. The first few months, um, I just worked mostly with Tony on testing out different hypotheses about how coaching could be done. So should coaching be done in like a one-to-one format? Should there be like group coaching? Um, Should there be more of like a course coaching where a coach creates some sort of packet of material and then just like anyone can sign up for it at any time? Like what level of accountability needs to be there? What's the, what's like the price point that people will pay for coaching at? Like just, there were so many unknowns and it was really like starting over in a lot of ways and being again at the ground floor of product development. And so, yeah, we just, we tested out different ideas and theories using tools that already existed. The idea was like, how could we do minimal testing that didn't require a ton of design or development? So when we tested out group coaching, for instance, we just used GroupMe, a tool that, you know, was already in the market. And we pulled together a cohort of folks and just saw how people reacted in that kind of with that kind of interaction model. And so after a couple of months of that, we hit on one-to-one coaching and then ultimately ended up launching Coach.me with a one-to-one coaching model. That that was, I guess, like that was a big a big chunk of my experience at Coach.me. That's amazing. I, re- I remember using Lyft uh, in the very early days and it's really cool to see them transition into Coach.me. Yeah, I think Coach.me is still like learning and figuring out who exactly they want to appeal to. And it's been really fun for me to watch and cheer them on. So after your time at Coach.me, you were the marketing lead at Stride Labs, which unfortunately closed early this year due to lack of funding. So what was Stride Labs and how did you join the team? Yeah, so I ended up joining Stride, let's see, um, a year ago-ish. And so the company wasn't actually around for that long. I met up with John, the CEO. We started talking, met up with the CTO. They were in really early days. Um, John and uh, Sam, the co-founders, were out of VMware. They had like vast experience in the enterprise space. They knew a lot about collaboration. And um, I really just dug their vibe, frankly. And the designer who they had just brought into the team, um, a guy named Kevin, who's now heading up uh, a team at Airbnb, I I liked them. You know, it was really like, it wasn't about the product so much as the people. And that was one of the things that I've, you know, learned along the way is that your product is going to change and morph and, you know, but the people, the people that you're working with, that, that doesn't change. And, and if you join, if you can find a team of people who you just love hanging out with and working with, and you have a lot of chemistry with, then that's, so incredibly valuable. And so I joined Stride knowing that they had only raised us a, a small round and that when I was joining, they were in the middle of raising what they felt was going to be like a, a pretty hefty seed round. They had raised like shy of a million dollars for more of like a pre-seed round. And then they were going after like a, a like a hefty seed round. And you know, I just had a lot of confidence that with this team, we could do it. And there were six of us. So it was like uh, the two co-founders and then four other people who they hired really quickly. And the product itself was really aimed aimed around solving the the problem of uh, document collaboration. So like, you know, larger teams, especially 50 plus people, you're using Google Drive or Dropbox, like managing those, those folders becomes like a pretty, pretty big, ugly mess. And so we were really building a search layer on top of um, Drive, Dropbox, and Box. 
and making that a, a an experience that was like you know easier to navigate and um, smarter. So we would surface content for you. And long story short, the round never really came together, and we then pivoted into trying to sell the company, sort of like an aqua hire situation. And that was really fascinating process to go through, interviewing at a bunch of big companies, and we got a term sheet, but none of us were really excited about it. And, you know, there had been a lot of transparency along the way throughout the whole process. And so in the last like month or so of the company's existence, you know, we were all kind of like, all right, guys, like, let's just sort of call it a day and cut our losses and and move on individually. And so that's, yeah, that that's kind of what happened. And during that period of time where there was this like, freedom to sort of think creatively. That's when I started to get really excited about the idea of building my own bot. And one of the really cool things about Stride is that we had actually built a bot on um, the Slack platform. We were really early. Uh, We launched like right after the Slack platform opened up and we were doing it as a way to help our users better manage their documents through Slack. So we were like, okay, you know, you could actually search stride on slack and and that's what it was but i saw that and i was just like oh there's so much more that could be done here and i started talking to um sam the the cto bugging him about bots and i was like you know sort of like i think there's something really interesting going on here and uh and he was really encouraging he was like well you have some time like if you need any help with anything i'm happy to like help you and so yeah, as I started to build out my first bot, a, a resume bot, I was like pinging Sam for help and I'd get stuck on needing some like help with coding something. And and so, yeah, that, that's actually how and the timing behind me building my first bot was as Stride was starting to like close down. That's when I used the opportunity to build something that I was really interested in. So talking about bots and messaging, what is it about the medium or technology that you find so fascinating? Yeah, so I think like about a year and a half ago is when I started to really pay close attention. And it was because I started to notice my own behavior and the behavior of like kids uh, in my life and of like older people in my life. And I found just like across the board, people were using messaging apps all the time, whether it was iMessage or Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or you know, like DMing on Twitter, it was like this behavior of messaging. It was like so clearly the direction that people were moving. And having been really early before with social media, um, I've really watched these trends change and, and evolve. And so from blogging to social networks to, you know, the rise of mobile apps and, and then it was like, okay, so what's next? And it felt like what's next is, messaging platforms. And so I just started paying attention initially and and playing around with everything and looking at the different tools and dreaming up ideas for what could potentially live on top of a messaging platform. And it then became kind of, it just like, it has become clearer over time. Uh, and then as these messaging platforms have started to open up with Slack and Kick and Facebook, it's just felt like this inevitability now that we will see companies and products and services and sort of mini apps live on top of these messaging platforms. They've become a new kind of operating system. So yeah, uh, the space feels 
you know, huge and exciting and the opportunity is really big and it feels like a, a no brainer for me to want to do something in that space. Like I'm always kind of what, what is the next space? I mean, I was, like I said, you know, I've, I've been kind of like early on every social trend and this feels like the next social trend and I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so you recently took personal bots to the next level, launching one for Chris Messina. So what was this experience and process like for you? Yeah. So I didn't start out with some big, huge thesis. My whole thesis was just, I think there's something interesting here. Let's actually build something simple. And so, yeah, I built Esterbot, which is like a resume bot. It completely mapped to my own need at the time, which, like I said, the company was failing. I needed to go out and find a new job. And I was getting, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to start pinging my network. I'll go update my LinkedIn. And I just, it felt so boring when I looked at the options available to me. Like, yes, I can update my LinkedIn profile and it'll give you bullet points of what's happened in the last nine years of my career. And yeah, I can add some pictures, but like, it's just, it's, everybody has the same experience and there's just nothing interactive about it. And yeah, I have an about.me page. It's got like kind of a pretty picture and some links and like a little short bio. It just all felt so lame. And so the idea around the resume bot was, can I create something more interactive, more engaging, something that provides people with some utility around actually being able to communicate with me directly? Can it also tell my story in a more empathetic manner? Can it connect the dots that a resume would never really be able to connect? Like, like I said, you know, I have this kind of crazy story of having an educational background that does not map to my career. And I've had a couple of different pivots in my career. And I wanted to be able to really articulate how and why and what's interesting about what happened and what I learned along the way. And that felt like such a conversational format. Like you and I could sit down and have coffee and I could tell you all those things in like 10 or 15 minutes, like give you a high level overview. But like a recruiter doesn't get that. They don't really you have to take many steps into the process for that to happen. And so I felt like if I create a bot that does that and I stick it into my profile. So when people search for me and find me, they then have the opportunity to, to like experience more of my personality and get a sense for things I'm passionate about. Also things outside of work that I'm passionate about that might connect into either the company culture or to what the company's working on. But there's just like this opportunity for a better fit. And so, um, so yeah, I built this bot. I stuck it on my LinkedIn resume. I stuck it on my hired profile. I put it on my social media um, profiles. And I was so floored by the response from people who were like, A, oh my God, I didn't know all these things about you. And this is so compelling. B, I want this myself. And then C, I had like, I was inundated with requests from recruiters who experienced my bot, who felt like they knew me and who they'd already interviewed me <laughs> in some ways who were like, please come in. We really want to like do an in-person or, you know, you seem like the perfect candidate. Like, let's talk about what your salary requirements are. Like, I was just so impressed and excited by the enthusiasm of other people and also because I open sourced the project, I got to watch dozens of other people build their own resume bots and variations of personal bots. Over 700 people forked the repo on GitHub that um, I had you know, put out there. And it was just so fun to watch people get excited and to start to really understand what could potentially happen when you have a conversational format and it's a, a personal bot. 
And so that just like, you know, lit this fire in me to want to keep iterating on that idea. And so um, the next step for me was to do it for someone else. And, and so I built out, um, I sort of took what I learned from Esther Bot and I had put her on like a couple of platforms, Telegram over SMS and Facebook Messenger. And I just looked at, you know, the, the conversations that happened. Like I had tens of thousands of messages that I could learn from. And so I did that and I, and I dug in to look at like, where did people get stuck and what was actually interesting. And I looked at the, you know, the, the messages people sent me and the feedback that I was getting and the questions that people had. And then I wrapped that into sort of like a new format and I, I launched Messina bot for a guy named Chris Messina, who is the developer experience lead at Uber. He's got like a pretty, you know, substantial social following of folks in tech who, you know, like read what he writes on Medium and who reach out to him for coffee, um, especially a lot of like entrepreneurs who are getting started because he's one of the top um, guys who hunts products on this site, Product Hunt. And so um, he gets a lot of inbound requests. And so that that created sort of like a new set of challenges that I wanted to tackle. Like, what would it be like to help somebody field inbound requests through their personal bot? What would it be like for them to be able to share their events, their speaking gigs um, through their bot? What would it look like for them to have one-to-one chat experiences or, you know, have live office hours? And so it was really just like a brainstorming session of like, what can we do to sort of solve the problems that he's experiencing? And so, yeah, I sort of like put that together. We launched it. And again, I was just like blown away by the response of people who were, who went through the process of playing with his bot and talking to his bot who were like, this is crazy. Like, this is definitely um, something that I want for myself. Anyways, it was just like such an interesting experience to again, watch like tens of thousands of new conversations go through someone else's bot. And I had applied for bot camp. Betaworks, which is a, a startup incubator and fund here in New York, where I'm at right now, they were putting together a, a fund to invest in up to 10 companies building bots or bot related companies. And they were giving $200,000 for a pre-seed investment. And I had met with a guy named Ethan um, at some of the bot events that I was attending and meetups in San Francisco. And we had sort of been brainstorming stuff together. He had independently been building a couple of bots himself. And so we just got together and we were like, what would it be like for us to put together a personal bot platform? And let's, let's start like iterating on that idea. And um, so, yeah, we applied to bot camp, ultimately got accepted and started it just last Monday. So moved from San Francisco to New York um, here for just shy of three months to be part of the bot camp program. And what we're building is called Olabot and Olabot is a platform that makes it really fun and simple to build a personal bot. And we actually have already a, like a working version of it. And we're starting to onboard people. We launched last week. I gave the closing keynote at the venture beat mobile beat summit, which is like venture beats, big annual conference um, in San Francisco. And I got on stage and did the closing keynote with, a guy named Red Fu, who's, who is part of the band LMFAO. He's like a DJ and like, you know, he's got like one of the biggest hits of all time. Like he's one of, I think only 17 people that have ever passed a billion views for a video on YouTube, his, their music video, party rock anthem. 
And so he's got this like huge, massive social following, but he still struggles with how does he communicate with his audience in sort of like a more personalized way? What, what happens when he's not able to scale as a human to respond to all these people could potentially a bot do that for him. And so we started playing around with that idea and ultimately launched um, his personal bot on the Olabot platform. And we did that, you know, at the Venture Beat conference. And so it was really fun to have him on stage talking about why would he as a celebrity want a personal bot and and then just kind of talk about like the bigger vision of the company, which is just to enable anyone to to create a like fun, engaging bot. Yeah, that's that's what we're up to. That's what I'm that's what I'm doing every day, all day, all night. Um, you know. <laughs> wow, what a crazy couple of weeks! That that sounds like such a crazy and intense period. I I, I was one of those first ten thousand messages <laughs> somewhere in there <laughs> for the for the Messina bot, and and you know and that's why I had definitely heard about the the Olabot platform before with other people building their resume bots, and thought it was just the craziest thing to see happening. And I, I actually remember you know some of the messages that I that I traded with you know, quote unquote, Chris Messina on day one, where I was like, is this him? Is this the bot? I can't really tell. And then I was kind of like, you know, does it really matter? And, and how's that going to change, you know, the, the human experience? It's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's such a fascinating thing to watch. And it's so new. I mean, this is like the most nascent space right now um, with bots and AI and, and watching these, this like conversational paradigm unfold. It's like literally I try, you know, a dozen or more bots a week. And I feel like the rate at which they're improving is a incredible. And that's really great because the most chatbots right now are pretty shitty um, to talk to. But uh, so like the, like the speed of innovation is, you know, incredibly fast right now. And also the people who are looking at the space are so smart, so thoughtful. Um, earlier this week had Phil Libin come in and, and share with us about like why he's so excited about this space and talking about how the opportunity for the next five to 10 years of technology companies to be really built on top of this stack that's being developed right now with AI and LP, um, the piping that's going to exist in this conversational format is going to spawn, you know, sort of like the next big wave of tech companies. And to be on the ground floor of that and to be watching it evolve um, so quickly is really exciting. And I feel like <laughs> one of the things I learned painfully really this week was in once we, we just had Red Foo um, yesterday actually finally promote it to his audience because we really didn't want him to do any promotion until we had some security features in that we hadn't yet put in. And also we wanted people to have some like settings to be able to mute the notifications because we do this big group chat experience whenever he broadcasts something, which is like kind of challenging to explain. I think it's something you have to almost experience. But anyways, we wanted that to be all like working before he broadcasted it to his audience. And so he did that. And then what we found is like, there's this you know, people don't know what to do. Like, it's like as if people literally didn't believe that you could message him when in fact you could. And he was even live like chatting with people. But it's such a such a new, um, just such a new experience that and people don't expect it, right? Like if a celebrity or somebody um, with a large audience posts a picture to Instagram or posts a tweet, there's not really an expectation that they're going to like send you a direct message afterwards like and have a conversation back and forth. That's just not 
that's not the expectation. And, and the pot, the bot paradigm sort of enables that. And, and sometimes it's an automated message and sometimes it's not, sometimes it's really the person. And so we're trying to navigate, like, how do we let you know when, when it's the person and when it's not. And so there's, so you're not confused and, or not feeling, you know, lied to or manipulated in some way, but also that whether the person is there to talk with in the moment or not, that there's something that you can do to engage with them. And so, yeah, it's super interesting. I have a lot more questions than answers. And so a lot of what we're doing with Olabot right now is just experimentation. We're very slowly letting people onto the platform and every bot that we release out into the world, we just monitor really closely to see what works and doesn't work. And we're just, yeah, I'm so, I'm just so, I'm as curious and as excited as like everybody else. So it's just amazing to see where things are heading, right? Like from Slack, from Messenger, and just, it's a really cool space right now. And I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes in the, the near future. But um, on another topic, like what are some of the most recent apps that you've downloaded or used lately? I mean, I feel like the rest of the world is using the same exact exact app that I'm using this week, which is Pokemon Go. I mean, you're in the best place <laughs> right now. New York City is just like Pokemon Go players are everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I literally every time I go to a park, I just see like swarms of people looking at their phone. I know exactly what they're doing as they like move around and swipe on their screen. Um, yeah, I I was a Pokemon Go skeptic at first. I I I turned it on. I was like, yeah, that's kind of fun. I don't know. But then, given all the walking that I do on my commute, uh, it's turned out to be such a fun game that I feel kind of obsessed with right now. So I feel like that's the app of choice on my on my phone right now. Really cool. Yeah, I just actually came back from New York City. And it was so funny seeing there'd be like groups of people just with their phones up. And <laughs> oh, yeah, they're playing Pokemon Go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I actually have had like, one guy got really hostile with me. He was like, you're playing Pokemon Go, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, I am. He was like, you know, people all around the city are doing that. And they're just bumping into me everywhere. And I didn't bump into him, but it was like he was already anticipating that, like, you know, I was a distracted person. And, I mean, he was totally right. I could have very easily bumped into him. Like, But, uh, yeah, it was <laughs> I guess there's going to be like with anything some some measure of backlash, but I think most people, you know, love it. Yeah, absolutely. You got to be responsible when you're playing Pokemon Go. Heads up as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you live by and you think other people should know about? Yeah. So, just this week, actually, I am in the middle or towards the end of reading this new book called Big Magic. And it's by this woman, Elizabeth Gilbert. She's most famous for reading, for, for writing this book, Eat, Pray, Love. Anyways, in this book, she talks all about like creative living and how to be somebody who's willing to do things, be sort of be brave while being scared at the same time, which is really the entrepreneurial journey. I mean, there's, unless you're a sociopath, you're going to be afraid of failure. You're going to be afraid of what you build people hating. You're going to have some fear around, you know, taking money or not making enough money or whatever. Like this is part of the creative process. And so she said something in the book that really, really struck me. Um, and it really maps to my experience. She said that if you're not actively creating something, you're probably destroying something yourself, a relationship, or your peace of mind. For me, that's 100% true because as a creative person, and I actually think all of us are creative people. Um, I don't think it's just like a particular 
personality type or something. But like, if you're not actively doing something, building something, creating art of some kind or coding or whatever it is for, for you, um, if you're not doing that, then like that stagnation of just sitting around is actually really destructive. And so, yeah, I think like for me, um, I've always just really tried to have something that I'm doing, even if the job that I'm currently doing, which this is not the case for me right now, but like there have been times where I've taken on jobs just to make money, but then I would always be doing something creative on the side. And I think like those side projects can ultimately sometimes even blossom and morph into the thing that you're doing full time, which is like what happened for me most recently, where, you know, I turned my side project into a startup, like a legit company. And and I think like that's what people should be doing. Always like be tinkering, always be uh, learning, always be trying something outside of your comfort zone. And, and when you do that, um, like really amazing things can happen. Absolutely. That's a perfect way to end the episode. Esther, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us in the middle of all the things you have going on. We really, really appreciate it. It was awesome to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and on the web at hacktostart.com. We couldn't do the show without your awesome support, so please leave us a review. Until next week.